So between Peter's first letter and Peter's second letter, we're studying the gospel according to Mark. Mark is the second gospel in the New Testament after Matthew, but it was very likely the first one written. It was probably written a decade or so before Matthew wrote his account of the gospel. Mark probably wrote it maybe in the early 60s. That's a a good guess. Uh, So about 30 years after the events he records. And we're going to begin our study of this first written account of the gospel written by Mark. I want to do three things today. I want to answer a few introductory questions. And then I want to read the majority of chapter one. And then in conclusion, I want to state the main point. The three sections of the message are going to move from longest to shortest. The stating of the main point and the conclusion is going to be just maybe a minute or two. The scripture reading that comes before it is going to be a bit longer. And these introductory questions are actually going to be the bulk of the message. So we're going to handle it kind of in reverse order, reading scripture toward the end of the message. I want to begin with asking and answering a few introductory questions, and I actually have four to ask and answer. And the first introductory question is, what is a gospel? This is, if you see the title of the book, The Gospel According to Mark, or According to Mark, and The Gospel According to Mark is a very good title because the first line is the beginning of the gospel. Mark is writing the gospel, or a gospel. The term gospel refers to a news report. That's good. The term was actually used significantly in the ancient Roman world by emperors, used in a secular way. The emperors would proclaim a gospel. And this would be what some people have called joyful tidings. And it might be that the emperor announces that there are going to be festival days because there is a new accession to the throne coming. Or there's a birthday party that's coming. So everyone's going to break in a few months and we are going to celebrate festivals in honor of the new emperor or in honor of the emperor's birthday. Joyful tidings. An announcement of something good, something noteworthy that's happening in the kingdom. Maybe a simple way of saying how the New Testament writers use it is... A gospel is a joyful announcement that God's king has arrived. It's the joyful announcement, the good news, that God's king is here. Jesus himself, as we're going to see in verse 14, came proclaiming the gospel of God. Mark didn't invent this title. Jesus came announcing the gospel. And Mark says 30 years later, I'm going to recount to you the gospel that Jesus came announcing. The king's here. God's chosen king has arrived. The good tidings is that gospel. Now, just to comment on this a little bit, there are four accounts of the gospel. You might say four gospels that start the New Testament. That's not original with me, but I have said in the past, and I'm going to probably say it till I die, We need to remember that these four Gospels are like the four-chambered heart of the Bible. You've got a lot of the Bible, but if you try to get right at the heart of the Bible, you've got the four-chambered heart, and that is the four accounts of the Gospel. Sometimes people wrongly think 
of the Bible as merely a history book or a philosophy book or a book of laws and rules. No, actually, when you understand the Bible rightly, you understand that at the heart of the Bible is a person, a glorious king who has the power to make us right with our creator. The Bible is a book that centers on Jesus. The four-chambered heart of the Bible are these four biographical accounts of Jesus. And these are four complementary biographies. They're not contradictory. They're from four complementary perspectives. The authors have different emphases. The authors have different styles of writing. The authors had different experiences with encountering Jesus. And it's not surprising then that they are four witnesses that testify to the reality of Jesus, the history of Jesus, the power of Jesus. And yet they do so like four witnesses in a court in in distinctive ways. I think Daryl Bach, scholar from Dallas, says it very well when he says to those who think, I don't need to give any attention to the Gospels. He says, Christ's story is just as well attested as Caesar's. You can accept or deny claims made about Jesus in the Gospels. That's your right to do as a reader. Do I believe that these are true? But you can't pretend that these claims were never made. If the sources for Julius Caesar are good enough for classical scholars, classicists, to study and accept, then we should also seriously assess the core descriptions of Jesus' life from the sources that were closest to him. These are ancient, historic biographies that deserve our attention, that demand our attention and our response. So the first question, what is a gospel? The second introductory question is, why are we studying Mark between Peter's two letters? This morning I actually wanted to go into a lot more detail in answering this question, but I'm going to have to summarize it for the sake of time and and focus. The first two centuries after this gospel was written, it was repeatedly and uniformly affirmed that Mark and Peter were ministry teammates in Rome and that Mark reported in writing Peter's verbal answers to the question, what is the gospel? In other words, Mark, the author of this account, and Peter, the lead disciple of Jesus, Years after Jesus' crucifixion, his resurrection and ascension into heaven, they were teammates, at, at least for a time, they were teammates in Rome, church planting, pastoring there together. And Mark must have heard hundreds of times Peter answer the question, so what is the gospel? Who is Jesus? Why should it matter for my life? And Mark considered it significant to offer a written testimony. Maybe he was anticipating the time when after Peter was dead that he would have a written account that could spread more more widely than Peter's voice. That he would have a written account of how Peter, the lead disciple of Jesus, would answer the question, who is Jesus and why should it matter for my life? And you say there's testimony. This is where I wanted to go into detail, but I'm going to have to just summarize it. The first and most significant Testifier to the fact that Mark translated or, or disseminated what Peter would say is a man named Papias. He was a pastor for several decades in a town near Colossae in uh, modern Turkey. 
Papias around 140, and Papias had been discipled by John, the apostle. He testified that Mark's account of the gospel was essentially Peter's verbal record that Mark put into writing. The second one is a few years later in the next generation, Irenaeus, or Irenaeus. Irenaeus wrote that Mark transmitted to us in writing the things that were preached by Peter. This was around 175, so about 30 years after Papias. Irenaeus had grown up in Turkey, but he actually took the gospel into the southern part of France today. He took the gospel into Europe, and he invested decades of his life planting churches in the southern region of France about a hundred years after Mark. He said, Mark transmitted to us in writing the things preached by Peter. Then within about 10 years of Irenaeus, there were two, I might call them like study Bibles that were published. The one goes under the name of the Anti-Marcionite Prologue and the other goes under the name of the Muratorian Canon. And the notes that introduce Mark's gospel affirm that Mark was transmitting Peter's ideas. His verbal answers to the questions, what is the gospel? And the Muratorian canon does the same thing. Again, both of those are within about 100 years of Mark. So the uniform and repeated testimony of church history is that Mark was articulating in writing what Peter would say verbally. So now you say, third question, who's Mark? Who's Mark? If you're not very familiar with the Bible, this could be a a brand new question to you. And I want to try to answer it by pointing to two passages. The only Mark in the first century that would not have needed to be more clearly identified in any of the attributions to him would be John Mark, called Mark. The first passage I want to point you to is actually Acts 12.12. You can turn there, or you can just listen to me as I quote it. In Acts 12, there's an account of Herod imprisoning Peter in Jerusalem. This happens about 46 AD. It's about 15 years after the events of the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. About 15 years later, Peter is imprisoned by Herod. And the chapter recounts how God rescued Peter. Peter from prison using an angel. It's a humorous account. When the, when the angel kicks Peter to get him up, Peter doesn't know if he's still dreaming or not. He must have been a heavy sleeper. In Acts 12.11, Peter realizes finally as he's running away from the jail that the escape is for real. And in verse 12, we find out where he goes in Jerusalem. It says, Acts 12, 12, when Peter realized this, that it was real, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And you might recall the other part of this humorous incident where the girl Rhoda comes to the door. He's knocking at the door. She says, who's there? He says, it's Peter. She recognizes it's Peter. They've just been praying for Peter's release from prison. And rather than opening the door for Peter, she laughs and she goes in to tell the others that the prayer's been answered. She leaves Peter at the door. Mark's mom was the owner of this house. And it was very likely a central meeting place for the church in Jerusalem. 
Many people suggest that this house that Peter comes to is actually the upper room where the disciples observed the Passover before the crucifixion. It's Mark's house. This was where Mark grew up. This is the John Mark who wrote this account of the gospel. Now, real quick, it's the same Mark who the following year would join Barnabas and Paul in planting churches. And after a year or two, we don't know why, but he left Paul and Barnabas. Apparently, Mark and Paul didn't get along very well for a few years. We don't know what the disagreement was over, but a few years later, Mark joins Barnabas again for another church planting journey while Paul and Silas go together. So God uses even disagreement to multiply the gospel's advance. And then Mark and Paul are eventually reconciled. We know from Colossians, Philemon, and 2 Timothy that Mark and Paul were eventually reconciled and that Mark actually ministered to Paul during his Roman imprisonment. This is the Mark that wrote the gospel. The second passage I've pointed to twice this year is 1 Peter 5.13. This is where Peter writes, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Now Babylon, or she who is at Babylon, is probably a reference to the church in the very secular city of Rome. That's where Peter and Mark were pastoring at the time and where they were planting churches and investing in churches. And here Peter refers to Mark, just like Paul does Timothy, Peter refers to Mark as my son. Of course, the language is not referring to his biological son, but it's referring to his assistant, my protege, my dear friend in whom I've poured my life, into whom I've poured my life. Mark and Peter have this close, personal, and pastoral relationship. So, again, Mark and Peter, during these years of teaming, would have often encountered people, especially in the secular city of Rome, saying, Jesus? Who's Jesus? Why should I care? And Mark... Peter's protege would have often heard Peter answer that question in maybe 60 to 90 minutes. And Peter would start at the beginning. This is where it all began. And this is when I got called into it. And this is the kind of thing I saw Jesus do. And a few years later, Jesus would ask me, who do you think I am? And I had become convinced that he was this. And then Jesus started telling me that he had to go to the cross. And I watched Jesus die. And then I witnessed Jesus' resurrection and his ascension into heaven. He proclaimed me to take this message throughout the world because he's God's chosen king who can end the curse on this planet. And Mark would have heard Peter saying that message over and over and over. And Mark probably thought, again, I'm reviewing what I said earlier. Mark probably thought, Peter's not going to be around forever. He's been in prison quite a bit. I need to record this message that I've heard him say dozens and dozens and dozens of times. I need to record it so that as people keep asking this question in Rome and in other places, they can understand the, the authentic account of the gospel from the man who knew Jesus best. Hmm. Just before we turn to the fourth question, I want to point out what many scholars consider to be the signature, the author's signature in the gospel. So if you will, turn to Mark 14, or I've got it printed here on the screen. 
This event occurs the night before Jesus' crucifixion, and it happens just after the disciples have left the upper room where they observed the Passover. Again, many people think that probably happened at Mark's house. And they head to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is arrested. Right after Jesus is arrested, Mark recounts this, and only Mark recounts this. It's cryptic. Not quite sure. Why would you record something like this? Mark records, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And the authorities seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. It's the only thing we know. Throughout the centuries, beginning in the earliest centuries of the church, most Christians have understood this to be the author's signature on the book. This would be a typical way that an author would write his signature, kind of cryptically with a poignant but mysterious episode. John Mark, I think, is the young man who fled away totally naked. And I can only imagine that Mark, having had 30 years to reflect on that night, saw in that story, that little story, something that summarized his whole life. Think about it. Mark was the young man. Young men, even like Isaiah 40 says, they, they should be the strong ones. They're the ones who are the, the strong people in a society, the young men. And he fled away, leaving a coat in someone else's hands. He's contrasting himself, I think, with Joseph. At the moment of Joseph's greatest temptation, he was the hero who fled temptation. And he did the will of God. He said, I am not going to sin against God. Mark understood he was so unlike Joseph. He was the coward who in the moment of greatest trial, rather than standing with Jesus, he ran away fearful. And he ran away naked, ashamed, needing to be clothed. And he left Jesus alone. For the rest of his life, Mark would remember, I was the coward. I was the one who was, who was hopeless without Jesus. Without Jesus, I was full of shame. Jesus, the one I left, he was the hero. He was the one who suffered for me and all of my fear and shame. Jesus was the perfect one who obeyed God no matter what the cost. Without Jesus, I'm naked. Jesus is the one who can clothe me with his righteousness. Jesus is the one who died for all of my fear, who can cleanse all of my shame. He can clothe me forever with his righteousness. Without Jesus, I'm nothing. Jesus is my hero. He's my savior. He's my all. In him, I have eternal life. I think Mark's probably saying that by this little picturesque account. Now to the fourth question. What are the key points in Mark's gospel? I've already hinted at these, but I'm trying to lay some footers as we get into this study. There are four key points. The first is in Mark 1.1, 1, 1, 
where Mark introduces Jesus as the Son of God. Now, in the ancient world, the Son of God, or a Son of the Gods, would have been a term for a king, the king's choice. But Mark clearly understands this to involve more. He understands this to be a title that signifies that Jesus is from God, that Jesus is eternally related to God the Father as the Son, and that Jesus is not merely human, but he is divine. He is God. Jesus of Nazareth is a unique person. He's the Son of God. He's God become man. Second, key point. Mark recounts years of Jesus' ministry in Galilee, especially how he confronts demons. And at the turning point of the book, Jesus poses a question to the men he's traveled with for these years. He says, who do you think I am? And Peter stands up representing the whole group and he says, you're the Messiah. You're God's chosen king who can rid earth of sin, death. You can rule over this world. After you completely remake it, you can rule over this world forever in peace so that it flourishes like the creator intended. The third facet is that as soon as the disciples are convinced that Jesus is God's chosen king, Jesus starts telling them, I'm going to die in Jerusalem. He actually makes three predictions that he, the Son of God, is going to die in Jerusalem. And the third prediction is climactic. This is where Jesus as clearly as ever reveals his mission. Mark puts it like this. Mark 10.45, after the third prediction of his death, that the Son of God is going to suffer, Jesus explains, this is why I came. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This means Jesus is a king like earth has never seen. He is the servant king. He is the king who is willing to suffer and even give his life for the good of those he leads. The fourth facet of Mark's gospel is the conclusion. The gospel is moving toward the crucifixion in Jerusalem, and when Jesus died on the cross, we're told that he uttered a loud cry, he breathed his last And there was a centurion, a Roman citizen, a Roman soldier there who witnessed Jesus die. And this Roman soldier exclaimed, truly, this man was the Son of God. Mark introduces him as the Son of God. The disciples become convinced that he is God become man chosen to rule forever on this planet. And then Jesus turns it and says, yep, I've come to suffer before I reign. I have come a king like no other to give my life for others. And a Roman citizen, a centurion, is convinced that the one who died there on the cross is absolutely no mere human. I am looking at the Son of God, God's chosen king for this planet. And it really forces everyone to ask, is this true? 
Is Jesus really the Son of God? Did He really die for sinners? And did He rise again to prove that He has the power to rid earth of the curse? It's the conclusion that Mark forced all of his Roman readers toward. It's the conclusion that he forces all of us to wrestle with. That's the first part of the message, the four questions, four introductory questions. Now, as we move toward conclusion, I just want to read the first 39 verses with a few comments and then summarize the main point and leave us, hopefully, leave us the glory of Jesus. Mark 1 through 39, uh, 1, 1 through 39. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it's written in Isaiah the prophet, of course Isaiah was anticipating an exodus that would be greater than the one Moses led in. As it's written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. In keeping with that, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem, all Jerusalem were going out to John, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan as they confessed their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He was definitely a man of the wilderness. And he preached, saying, After me is coming one who is mightier than I am, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This coming one, he's actually going to be able to fix your hearts. He's going to be able, in the power of God's Spirit, to reorient your hearts so that they're Godward rather than selfward. He's going to be able to do a whole lot more than just get your bodies wet. He's going to be able to change you, cleanse you from the inside out. Verse 9, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. That's really interesting that Jesus, who never sinned, identified himself with repenting sinners when he got baptized. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You're my beloved Son. With you I'm well pleased. The voice and this dove convey that Jesus is God's chosen King who has the power the authority to fix all that's wrong in creation, and he is going to do it by suffering, by identifying with sinners, and by suffering. That's why, verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and yet the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. 
Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said, follow me, and I'll make you to become fishers of men. So their objective from this point on in their lives would be learning from Jesus and even teeming with Jesus in gathering people for the kingdom, gathering people to inherit the kingdom. And these men immediately left their nets and they followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. These men left their careers, literally, and started following Jesus. Verse 21 says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue at Capernaum and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Now in coming weeks, we're going to explore spiritual warfare, demonic influence in more detail because this is a major theme in Mark's gospel. You can see already we're about 20 verses in and Jesus has gone head to head with Satan and he will repeatedly throughout this book encounter those under the influence of demons. This is a major theme in Mark's gospel. We're going to explore it in weeks ahead. We won't this morning. And this man, under the influence of a demon, verse 24, cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately, like the same afternoon, he left the synagogue and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her. And he came, and he took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. This must have been such a huge encouragement to Peter, who had just left his career as a middle-class fisherman to follow Jesus. Had his wife's mother died in his home under his roof as he has just left, Peter would have probably been blamed for family negligence. And yet Jesus shows the entire family that Peter had committed his life to the one thing, the one person that really matters for all eternity. It's Jesus. He made the right choice. And that evening, verse 32, at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. He healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And He wouldn't permit the demons to speak because they knew him. You can see again that a major theme of Mark is that the Son of God, Jesus, is going to war 
against Satan and his forces. It's characteristic of his life and ministry. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus departed and he went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. It's profound that he goes to the desolate place and prays. It's going to be through his close relationship with God, in fact, his perfect obedience to God and his total delight in God the Father that Jesus is going to turn the desolate place, the cursed wilderness, into a world once again that's like the garden. And he's going to do this for all who follow him. Verse 36, And Simon and those who were with him searched for Jesus. And when they found him, they said to him, Everyone's looking for you. What are you doing out here all by yourself? And Jesus said to them, We've got to go on to the next towns so that I may preach there also. That's why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Jesus' primary mission was not to heal as many people as he possibly could physically. Jesus' mission was to explain the gospel to as many people as he could so that they could be saved forever by repenting of their sins and following him. Mark's main point, this is the conclusion of the message, is that Jesus is the Son of God who came to wage war against Satan and destroy him. And Mark's implied application for every reader is this. If you want to experience life without the curse, you must repent of your self-centeredness and follow Jesus through suffering to glory. You're going to follow a Savior who suffered. You're going to follow a King who lived in the wilderness. You're going to follow a King who was opposed, who didn't have it easy. If you want to experience life Without the curse, you must repent and follow Jesus no matter how hard the way is. Jesus came preaching the gospel. He came announcing, the king's here. This king has the authority and the power to conquer Satan and to end sin and death in this cursed creation. And yet from the very beginning of his ministry, People, even his disciples, seemed to be more interested in the temporary relief that he could give people through physical healing rather than in the total life repentance that Jesus was demanding. My concluding comment is this. Do we realize that our greatest problems in life are not physical but spiritual? Our fundamental problem is not sickness. Our fundamental problem is sin. And our greatest need is not physical healing, but a relationship with our eternal creator, God, through Jesus, the Son of God. And being reconciled to God through committing your life to King Jesus will lead ultimately to eternal life, in a completely restored creation.
This is the simple, powerful, heavy message that Mark begins to record in the first chapter. And he compels each of us to ask, is this true? If you are not a follower of Jesus, I urge you to consider this historical record. And I urge you to follow Jesus. Commit your life to following Jesus no matter how hard, no matter what changes it might make, no matter how you might be ridiculed by your family, no matter what kind of humility it demands from you, follow Jesus. And if you have chosen to follow Jesus, it's not going to make your life easier. You stay committed. Keep committed to Jesus, no matter what you endure. Father, I ask that you would glorify Jesus, not only this morning, but throughout the months ahead as we study together the gospel according to Mark. God, I pray for those in here who are exploring Jesus' claims. I pray that they would keep returning and encountering Mark's record of who Jesus was and why it matters. God, I pray that you would work for good in all of our lives. For those of us who've committed to Jesus, I pray that you would strengthen our commitment and fuel our yearning to be with Jesus. In his name, amen. Amen.